I get, you know, as Rick just prayed, what, what has been on my heart, I guess what's been on my heart for years and years is how sad um, secular thinking and evolution and atheism and all that has incorporated into our education system, into our world, into everything from TV commercials to just everything. It's, it's as if the world doesn't even question it anymore that, that this world was around millions and billions of years ago and everything just came from some random accident. And, and it's sad. I, I, I don't like that. And the, it's interesting. The Bible doesn't address the theory of evolution, yet it completely uh, stands um, on God's creation and shows you exactly why the theory of evolution holds no water. And I want to speak about that tonight and how it's tied in with secular thinking, how it has affected uh, the church and our education system and, and many other facets of our society. So, um, so that's what I'd like, like to speak about. Um, specifically with the details related to the great flood of Noah. There's so much about that that really drives home um, the science, um, the, the true scientific uh, discoveries that, are, that we see in the world are tied in with the great flood. And so I'm going to speak a lot about that and how it ultimately points us to God and his son and God's gospel of eternal salvation. So we'll look at a good portion of Genesis as well as Second Peter this evening. But let's start with a familiar passage in Romans. And I'm going to go ahead and get this on. Um, so I can slide them on from there. So Robert, whenever you, it's, I saw it earlier, but yeah, you've, you've seen this before. And if, there you are. Okay. Um, Romans 1, if you don't mind turning there, Romans 1, and we'll go from about 20 through 25. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. And Paul is referring, by the way, to the skeptical Gentiles here, as he's speaking about them. But they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man, and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore God gave them over in the lusts of their heart to impurity." so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the, the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. And my heart goes out to those lost people that have exchanged that truth of God for a lie. And we see it today in society, as I, as I just mentioned. Um, they're everywhere. And I especially notice it where I work, uh, but I know it's part of the public school system. Um, and you, you just see secular thinking and evolutionism everywhere. Um, and I thought, well, it hasn't been spoken about a whole lot here from in this, in this chapel. I thought I wanted to, to talk about that. So, um, but let's open with a word of prayer before we go any further. Heavenly Father, we, we humbly come before you, acknowledging you as the creator of this world. You made it for us to enjoy. You said it was good as you created it. But you have also, in your perfect righteousness, said that our sin is enough to keep us out of heaven. But you also sent your own son to remedy that problem. And it's only by accepting him as our Savior that we can know you personally. So tonight we thank you for him. We thank you for your word of truth that we can turn to. And we invite your Holy Spirit here tonight to open up the truth of your word. It's in your son's precious name that we ask this tonight. Amen. Well, as a, as a believer, one who has put his faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, as well as someone who studied geology in college, I have come to have a very keen interest in what the earth's amazing physical display tells us about our creator. I had to sit under many, many hours of lectures that began with millions and millions of years ago 
And as, also, as a youngster growing up in Arizona, I hiked the Grand Canyon quite a number of times. So I started having a really a keen interest in, in you know, what, what that was able to show me. And there's the Grand Canyon. Anybody been there? All right, yeah. You know, it's a shame the Yosemite folks couldn't, couldn't come out tonight and make the trip down here, but oh well. It's nice to have the this, this small crowd tonight anyway. Um, well, there are, or there, there used to be anyway on the signs. I don't remember noticing them as much in the last few years. Uh, signs on the trails in the Grand Canyon showing how many millions of years old the various rock layers are. Signs like that one right there. And it, it's almost too small to see, but along here they would have the rock ages and how old they are. And, and if you look down at the last sentence there, uh, limestones and sandstones deposited in a shallow, slowly retreating sea form the lower part. Well, I mean, those are all the rock layers there, but the, the sign is deceiving, you know, and there it is in a, in a, in a public national park. Um, I actually did a science project in eighth grade that I called How Was the Grand Canyon Formed? And I even won $15 for it at the 1986 State, State Science Fair. And, uh, and if you don't believe that, there he is right there, huh? Yeah. Anyway, um, yeah, how about that? I have no idea where that project is. I actually hiked down the, the canyon with my dad and picked out a rock from each layer. Um, it's probably illegal. I don't know if I was supposed to do it or not, but um, there they are. So um, the, little, the little box down there is basically just a box of mud. And I remember as I, I did a little experiment, we had to have an experiment that went along with the project, and I, I squirted a hose into that mud, and immediately it just, it just went away super, super quick. And it actually exposed small little layers of mud in there as I was doing that. And at that moment, I thought, you know, that, wow, that happened quick. That's interesting how quickly that happened. And I think a little seed was planted right there, and it got me thinking further about, about how the Grand Canyon may have been actually made in a, in a quicker way than um, a lot of textbooks would like to tell you. So studying the rocks of the Earth has always fascinated me, and, I, and I've heard so many expert scientific talks, even while sitting on the rim of the Grand Canyon, um, that start with, you know, well, well, if you can use your imagination and go back several million years and try to picture this area long ago as simply a flat, dry landscape with an ocean slowly advancing and then retreating back and forth, depositing rock across its landscape, then you'll begin to understand how the Grand Canyon was formed. I think I always knew that God had answers for why his creation looks the way it does, and I wound up realizing after dozens and dozens of secular, modern, even atheistic science lectures that I needed to figure out the truth and, and to go as deeply as I could with it. So I've become fascinated with how God's creation points to himself and with how his holy word backs it up. So I, I believe in the sufficiency of the scriptures, I believe, and because of their sufficiency, I believe that God has revealed the exact amount of truth that he wants us to have such that our faith in him as a loving creator, a fair judge, and a loving savior could be anchored firm, just, of course, with just his word. Let's reread verse 25 of Romans 1 that we were looking at earlier, just, just for a tidbit here of it. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. I find that there's, there's really no overlap between secular evolutionary thinking and biblical thinking. Some people try to mix the two together. Really, from the very beginning, you're both starting from a completely different viewpoint. And to try and get the other person who you might be speaking with on the other side of the argument to agree with you, you can't ever do it because at the very beginning, you don't agree on the first letter of, of what you're speaking about or, or, uh, or trying to debate. So those kind of debates, I find, don't typically go too far because your worldview from the beginning is already in place and uh, you're not going to accept what the other person says, um, and it's only the power of God that can cause you to think about uh, 
why the word of truth really points to the way he really made the world and, and with also what the flood points to as well. So um, that's why I want to be talking about how deceptive our worldly and secular and modern scientific teaching has become because it's in textbooks, it's in videos, it's in little children's dinosaur books, and it's in the mandated public school curriculum now too. It's also very common in private school and, and it's what's taught in university level curriculum and not just in science, but the type of thinking is extending into other, other subjects too. Um, I don't want to spend too much time talking about this because I want to focus on what the Word of God says, but I want to mention what the theory of evolution basically says, proposed initially by Charles Darwin, even though he was influenced by other evolutionists uh, as well. And let me see if I want to click there yet. Not quite. Um, Darwin initially proposed the theory of evolution, but he also required some considerable evidence, evidence that was not available at the time that he proposed his theory. Uh, he needed that to justify his theory, though. And um, from a, a book called Darwin on Trial, I read, which is very, it's, it's biblically based um, justification uh, and, and goes after what his theory was saying and, and how um, even, even without having to use the Bible, there are so many holes in the theory and with what was proposed um, that I just found it a fascinating read. But again, not trying to replace the word of God with it, but I, I just found it, it dug deeper and, and uh, was, was pretty fascinating. So um, as far as what the theory of evolution is, Darwin evo Darwinian evolution postulates two elements. The first is what Darwin called variation and what scientists today call mutation. Mutations are randomly occurring genetic changes which are nearly always harmful when they produce effects in the organism large enough to be visible, but which may occasionally slightly improve the organism's ability to survive and reproduce. And this theory continues with some necessary assumptions. Given enough time and sufficient mutations of the right sort, enormously complex organs and patterns of adaptive behavior can eventually be produced in tiny cumulative steps leading to an eventual change from one species into another without the assistance of any pre-existing intelligence. I think that's the saddest part, without the assistance of any pre-existing intelligence. In other words, you're throwing God right out. And he labeled this theoretical process natural selection. And, and that is, all this can happen only if the theory is true, all right? But it can't be proven because you don't have millions of years to test it out. Darwin could not point to impressive examples of natural selection in action, and so we had to rely heavily on an argument by analogy, and that analogy was to refer to the artificial selection process that animal and plant breeders deliberately use to improve domesticated varieties of animals and plants. And that still goes on today. That's the gist of his theory, but again, he knew it needed some evidence to support it. Um, but something he, he has said here, uh, and I, I will, I, yeah, in fact, I'm going to say it later on, so let me just get to that. Um, one of the problems that, that the theory of evolution has, and, and Darwin even addressed this ahead of time, is called the fossil problem. Darwin acknowledged this issue as he was developing his theory and saying that the fossil problem is basically for the theory of evolution to have the physical supportive evidence to show that different species could have gradually evolved from one type into another, the fossil record should contain innumerable, many, many, many transitional forms of the species that would have been necessary to have existed if organisms evolved from one species completely into another. So for example, we should see fossils of animal types that look as if they are transitional forms between fish and amphibians. And not just a few here and there, they should be myriads of transitional forms scattered throughout the fossil record. People often use the phrase, the missing link. But this really should be termed the millions of missing links, if the theory of evolution is to hold any water. And to quote from Darwin himself, why, if species have descended from other species by insensibly fine gradations, 
do we not everywhere see innumerable transitional forms? He's saying, wait, they're not in the fossil record, but they should be if my theory is to be true. Why is not all nature in confusion instead of the species being, as we see them, well-defined? So complete, you know, like the animals and plants that we see now. So even Darwin knew that his theory wasn't conclusively proven, but the world kind of grabbed it and ran away with it, and scientists wanted to prove it and take it. So oh, that sounds interesting. Let's take it. But it really goes against all biblical truth. And I'll explain, I'll explain why his theory was grabbed and taken uh, a little bit later and the effects of it. One other interesting question to ask about the theory of evolution, why and how would something complex like a human eye or a bird's wing randomly evolve in the first place? For an organism's eye to evolve, there would, have to, there would had to have been at some point a version of the eye that was not as complete as the complete eye we have in our bodies now. And along with that, the numerous parts that make up the eye would also have had to have evolved as well in conjunction with the other parts of the eye and the optic nerve going to the brain and the nervous system, the eye socket in the skull, the muscles that move the eye, the eyelid, eyelashes, the tear ducts, and a lot of other parts that I don't have the qualifications or the time to mention. But as well, even, even if the physical eye could evolve, how does sight occur after all of this accidental random evolution? What is the essence of sight or of hearing or touch? What makes it real? We now know that it happens in the brain, but why would something essentially intangible like sight or hearing evolve? Those are questions that, I mean, just by asking them, it makes you go, oh, yeah, that's interesting. Well, why would they? Let's depart from the evolution topic for now, though, and see what the Bible tells us about some of these topics. When talking about fossils or geology or animal species, it makes sense to consider the details, as I mentioned, of the great flood of Noah's day. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus used the phrase, for as in those days before the flood. And we will look at that verse later, but let's look first at what Genesis says about the earth before the flood came, as Jesus spoke about the wickedness of those days. Uh, turn with me, if you'd like, to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis 2, and starting around verse 5. talking about the, what's called the antediluvian earth before the flood. Genesis 2 and verse 5, starting in verse 5, Now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted, for the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth. And this was actually even before man, okay? and there was no man to cultivate the ground. But a mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. The whole ecology was different. It was, it was not rain, but there was just a, probably a, a real uh, stark humidity that was there, always present. So the Bible tells us that the earth was different before the flood. The pre-flood earth is also known, as I said, as the antediluvian earth. And notice how it says in the word, a mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. Yet the world was not flooded. It was just a mist. So the Lord had that in, in control. There was water there, but exactly where was it is a good question to ask. So how about morally or spiritually, what was the pre-flood earth like? Um, if you look in Genesis 6, let's, let's go there. So we're getting close to when the, the flood is going to be happening here. Genesis 6, and uh, starting in verse 5. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Skipping forward to verse 11, just to stick with the topic here. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Verse 13, then God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me. For the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. 
So the flood begins. Now, I've been talking about, you know, the fallacy of thinking of in terms of millions and billions of years, but let's listen to how specifically God's word describes the short and fairly recent time frames for how and when the flood occurred, while keeping in mind that modern science and current geological dating methods still approximate the ages of rocks on the order of many, many millions of years. In Genesis 7, as this, the flood is about to begin here, Genesis 7, let's go to verse 11. Genesis 7, verse 11, in the 600th year of Noah's life. So he just put 600 birthday candles on his cake. In the, got them all out in one blow. In the, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on the same day, all the fountains of the great deep burst open. Now, that's a, that's a, a world map um, showing the, the, the center of the, well, showing the ocean floor. It looks like the seams of a baseball on there. So take a look at that. Um, you can also tell that the, the continents very, very well fit together if you squeezed them together, but somehow they were pulled apart. Well, let's see what happens here. On the same day, all the fountains of the great deep burst open, and the floodgates of the sky were open. So right in here is what's called the Mid-Ocean Ridge. This one's called the Mid-Atlantic Ocean Ridge. Um, they have various names here, and you can tell that sometimes they split apart like that and so on. Um, those are the great fountains of the deep, as well places like Hawaii, if I can find that over here, where there's a string of volcanoes. Those are fountains of the deep also thrusting up water that was embedded into the soil uh, of the, of, uh, that was in the, you know, the antediluvian earth. So, um, but as well, the, verse 12, the rain fell upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. Now, if it, had, if it had only rained for 40 days and 40 nights, I mean, you almost get that in places these days where it just rains and rains and rains, and you get rain running off and it's going into the sewers and stuff like that, but it doesn't lift and lift and lift until it covers the mountains. So the water had to come from somewhere. So there would have been an accumulation of water on the ground with only rain, but not enough to flood the entire earth. So um, all the fountains of the great deep burst open. I went to a commentary to find out a little bit more about this. Found a good one. I, I, I found went along with, uh, you know, the, the, the scripture, and I, I felt it was backed up pretty well by a fellow named Adam Clark. A commentary uh, where he starts with, were, were all the fountains of the great deep broken up and the windows of heaven were opened? It appears that an immense quantity of waters occupied the center of the antediluvian earth, and as these burst forth by the order of God, the circumambient strata, which is basically the rock that makes up the earth's crust, must sink in order to fill up the vacuum occasioned by the elevated waters. This is probably what is meant by breaking up the fountains of the great deep. These waters with the seas on the earth's surface might be deemed sufficient to drown the whole globe as the waters now on its surface are nearly three-fourths of the whole. And that's what it would look like uh, as, the, as the great deep burst open. By the opening of the windows of heaven is probably meant the, the precipitating of all the aqueous vapors which were suspended in the whole atmosphere. Remember before the earth was just, uh, and the water was just a mist, but all the water was there so that as Moses expresses it in Genesis 1-7, the waters that were above the firmament were again united to the waters which were below the firmament from which on the second day of creation they had been separated. God therefore by the means of lightning might have converted the whole atmosphere into water for the purpose of drowning the globe had there not been a sufficiency of merely aqueous vapors suspended in the atmosphere on the second day of creation. And if the electric fluid, if the lightning were used on this occasion for the production of water, the incessant glare of lightning and the continual peals of thunder must have added indescribable horrors to the scene. So after God's patience ran out, 
he, un, he unleashes his energy on it, and, and there we go. We just read in Genesis 7, the fountains of the great deep bursting open. Here's kind of a, a closer-up shot of, I think, the Mid-Atlantic Ridge, just to show you a little bit more. Um, right here, this is oceanic crust. It would be the oldest oceanic crust. Um, secular scientific thinking would say it's on the order of 200 million years old. Right here, though, even as we speak, new oceanic crust is being formed. There's things in, in that area called black smokers. They're pumping out water and as well um, hot gases right there in the bottom of the ocean and volcanoes. In fact, Iceland, which would be about right there, is that it? Uh, it's over here. For, it might be off the map, actually, is a result of a volcano that's coming forth from the inside of the ocean at, at the ridge. It lies right on top of the ridge. Um, but these ocean ridges were only discovered on the ocean for somewhat recently, about 100 years ago. But first, what do modern secular scientists say about the age of the oceanic crust? I mentioned a little bit ago, the oldest oceanic rock types associated with the mid-ocean ridges are suggested, and again by secular science, as being 200 million years old, whereas the freshest or the youngest rock is as new as can be, because it's being produced right now. But not with the same speed and spread that uh, happened right there when the great deep burst open. So we need to ask, what is correct about these ages, and what should we be prepared to not accept based on what the Bible teaches? It is correct that the lowest and the oldest bedrock layers on the land, like the rock at the bottom of the Grand Canyon or in other places of exposed bedrock on the continents, for example, that should be older than oceanic rock that came from the mid-ocean ridges. And modern non-biblical scientific thought does agree with that as far as a relative age difference. But the oldest rocks of the Grand Canyon are also suggested to be over one billion years old, much older than the oldest rocks formed by the mid-ocean mid ridges and these are suggested to be 200 million years old. So there's still a relative age difference that is actually all right. But are the rocks really this old? 200 million years old uh, for ocean crust and over 1 billion years old for the oldest rocks on the continents. We know that with the widespread sedimentary rock layers, the layers on the bottom were deposited first, and the layers on the top were deposited more recently. But do we really know how old they are? Not in a comparative sense, but with an actual age. Do we know their birthday? My father was 31 when I was born, and not surprisingly, he's still 31 years older than me. But do you know how old my father is, if I just tell you that? If you don't know his age or you don't know my age, you don't know. You don't, all you have is a gap. Radioactive dating uh, has a uh, circular reasoning to it that makes it um, unreliable, and, and it's based on the assumption that you don't really know how old some of the rocks are, even with radioactive dating, you know relatively that some have to be older than the others, but you don't know for sure how old any of them are. As well, could it be true on occasion that the rock layers on the bottom of a unit of sedimentary strata are essentially the same age as the rocks deposited at the top of the strata, if it happened rather quickly? If they're all deposited very rapidly, within a few hours or a few days perhaps, there's essentially no age difference between the bottom and the top layers of even a really thick unit of rock strata. So as far as determining the ages of the rocks on the seafloor associated with the mid-ocean ridges that, right there, scientists can determine how quickly the ridge is spreading and creating new rock right now today. But does that mean that this was always the rate at which the ocean ridge was spreading? We'll see later in 2 Peter that an issue like that is actually addressed. It, just because it's happening at a certain rate now doesn't mean it was always happening at that same rate um, from, the, from, you know, from uh, eternally past. The Bible doesn't say the reservoir of the great deep slowly and gradually crept open and allowed water to trickle out. It says on the same day, all the fountains of the great deep burst open. Now, if you're over 40, 
you probably remember the eruption of Mount St. Helens. And uh, the eruption of Mount St. Helens in May of 1980 brought up the question of how old rock strata is in a really interesting way. And it threw a lot of secular theoretical geology science onto the table for some serious reconsideration. Because in a matter of days, an enormous depth of strata, there's a slide of that right there, was established after the Mount St. Helens ash combined with snow and water to create enormous mud flows very quickly. So in a matter of days and weeks, this strata was, was uh, exposed right there. Um, and as the water cut through it, that, that's what was exposed. So all that wasn't there just weeks before that had happened. And this showed that it doesn't take long at all for a large deep unit of geologic strata to form. Anyway, um, let's now see what else modern science has discovered. There's some interesting tidbits I just want to throw in before we kind of, uh, you know, end up going back into the, the Word of God as well. But these are discoveries that actually square up with a worldwide flood and a world created by God in the way that, Bible, at the, that the Bible describes. There's a magazine I was introduced recently to, and, uh, you know, if you're interested in reading deeper on these kind of things, um, this magazine is called Acts and Facts. It's published by ICR, the Institute of Creation Research. Um, some of the articles here, Did Jesus Teach Recent Creation? Um, Embracing Catastrophic Plate Tectonics? Does Genesis Matter to the Gospel? Um, the Mystery of the Missing Talus in the Grand Canyon, on the, of, of the Grand Canyon Rocks? Um, Monument of Catastrophe from Mount St. Helens? But all of it is backed with scripture and just goes deeper into what the Bible can support scientifically. It, it's really phenomenally interesting. Um, another, another, I, I this is the kind of topic you could, you know, spend weeks and weeks talking about, but I just thought I'd throw in some other tidbits here. This is, uh, as you can read there, in 1977 in New Zealand, in the Pacific, Japanese fishermen caught this pleosaur. It's a sea dinosaur in a net. It was 32 feet long and weighed over 4,000 pounds. So it's not a great picture of it, but it really can't be anything other than that. And uh, a rather interesting find. So we're not talking 1,977 million years ago. It was the year 1977, during my lifetime. It was the same year Star Wars came out. I mean, it wasn't that long ago, you know? Um, so I kind of wonder whether or not the secular media put that event on the news or not. Um, anyway, um, another, another one. Soft tissue remains from incomplete fossilized dinosaur bones are being found in various places around the world. Well, why is that important? Well, soft tissue remains that should have been fossilized years and years ago if it was as old as uh, they like to say it is. There's no way that soft tissue would last even a million years. And it's been discovered in rock that has been dated, supposedly dated at 65 million years old. Secular scientists are scratching their heads over how to handle that. Um, but if dinosaurs were buried in the worldwide flood relatively recently and well-preserved in the rock strata that solidified after the flood, it's completely possible for there to still be soft tissue remaining inside the bones of preserved dinosaur skeletons, just like there could be soft tissue remaining for other animals uh, buried by the flood. All right. Um, enough talk about the modern science findings for now. I just kind of wanted to mention that. There's some interesting things there that I uh, wanted to go through. Let's look further, though, at exactly what the Bible says about the flood. And when I say exactly, I mean exactly. There's a really interesting timeline we can look at here. I think there it is. Okay. Um, it makes it out as if it happened in a, in a regular calendar year. But as we go into the, the story of the flood, um, just, just watch this as, you, as we also read the word here. I think it's pretty interesting. Um, as we go into Genesis 7, some of this I had read earlier, but Genesis 7 and verse 4, we'll begin there and then work our way bit by bit over to, uh, to chapter 8 as well. Um, we'll see how both the preciseness of the timing of the flood is written in Scripture, and let's also notice how quickly it happened from start to finish. 
All right, Genesis 7, starting at verse 4. For after seven more days, this is the Lord speaking to Noah, I will send rain on the earth 40 days and 40 nights, and I will blot out from the face of, of the land every living thing that I have made. So if you skip down to verse 10, just to stay on the topic here. It came about after the seven days that the water of the flood came upon the earth in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, which is why the chart uses February down there, on the 17th day of the month, I think February 17th, you know, if you were thinking of this as a calendar year, on the same day, all the fountains of the great deep burst open, and the floodgates of the sky were open. The rain fell upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights, and assuming it wasn't leap year, uh, the rain would have continued until March 28th. So they were right there, March 28th, and it's not mentioned in there, but I, I did the math on there for how long. Oh, wait, um, anyway, um, after 40 days, that's the day it would have, would have ended on. On the very same day, Noah and Shem and Ham and Japheth, the sons of Noah and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them, eight, those eight people entered the ark. They and every beast after its kind and all the cattle after their kind and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth after its kind. I know you know the story, but it's fascinating every time. And every bird after its kind, all sorts of birds. Verse 15, so they went into the ark to Noah by twos of all flesh in which was the breath of life. Those that entered, male and female of all flesh, entered as God commanded him, and the Lord closed it behind him. The Lord closed the door. Verse 17, then the flood came upon the earth for 40 days, and the water increased and lifted up the ark. You know, when I read that, I kind of think of, uh, you know, they have footage of, the, uh, of when those tsunamis hit, I think it was the Thailand area, uh, 10 years ago or so, or more, and uh, where the water just kept coming and coming. You can't do anything about it. And, and there it is. It just, you know, pushing people against trees. And is, there's no hope. Um, so it rose above the earth. Continuing in verse 18. The water prevailed and increased greatly upon the earth. And the ark floated on the surface of the water. Just like it was designed to do. The water prevailed more and more upon the earth. So that all the high mountains everywhere under the heavens were covered. The water prevailed 15 cubits higher. A cubit is 18 inches. About that far. And the mountains were covered. All flesh that moved on the earth perished, birds and cattle and beasts and every swarming thing that swarms upon the earth and all mankind. Of all that was on the dry land, not in the ocean, but on all the dry land and all, all in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life died. Thus he blotted out every living thing that was upon the face of the land from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky. And they were blotted out from the earth and only Noah was left together with those that were with him in the ark. The water prevailed upon the earth 150 days, which takes you up to July 17th, if we're looking at this again as a calendar year. Over to, into Genesis chapter 8, though, starting in verse 1. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the cattle that were with him in the ark, and God caused a wind to pass over the earth. I have a feeling it wasn't just kind of a windy day, a great wind uh, passing over the earth, and the water subsided if that wind was that strong to cause the water to subside, I think it's also strong enough to create canyons and, and everything uh, that we see as a result of, of the flood. Um, also, the fountains of the deep and the floodgates of the sky were closed, and the rain from the sky was restrained. Verse 3, and the water receded steadily from the earth. Well, it had, if it receded steadily, it had to go somewhere. And at the end of 150 days, the water decreased in the seventh month on the 17th day of the month. The ark rested upon the mountains of Ararat. The waters decreased steadily until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, month, which puts you at October 1st, the tops of the mountains became visible. So all this is happening very, very quickly. 
Verse 6, then it came about at the end of 40 days, which brings us to about November 9th, I think, yeah, when Noah sends the raven and so on, uh, that Noah opened the window of the ark which he had made. And just skipping ahead to verse 13, now it came about in the 601st year, this is of Noah's life, in the first month, on the first of the month, which would be like January 1st, so it's like New Year's Day, the water was dried up from the earth, and in verse 14, in the second month, on the 27th day of the month, it's February 27th of the next year, it's my sister's birthday, uh, the earth was dry. Okay, so the flood has essentially come and gone by that time. So just over a year, about a year and two months. Well, I think it's amazing. When you read through Genesis 7 and 8, the detailed timeline that God's word provides for us about the flood. And the flood answers so many questions that we naturally ask when we look at things like the Grand Canyon or the ridges in the middle of the ocean or even the evidence of wood in the area of Mount Ararat where the ark was said to have come to rest. Um, I wish I had more time to explain with some technical science about the radiometric dating uh, uh, of rocks and the unreliability of it, but in a very general sense, it's because you don't have a starting age for the rock. The ages of geologic strata end up depending on assumptions about the age of the strata, which leaves it wide open as far as how old a certain fossil or, or a certain unit of strata or rock layer might be. Um, but something interesting as far as maybe to, to ask the question, when did, when did the flood happen? Let's look at this. Interesting, the Bible doesn't come out and tell you the date or the year that the flood came out, but it's got the genealogy here in, in chapter 5, and a lot of times it's easy to skip over, um, you know, the genealogy records because it just seems like it's listing people, but with the, the years that are listed for the fatherhood of these people, it makes it an incredibly good tool to find out when the flood was. Um, going to God's Word, and, and the assumption that God's Word is absolutely true and reliable here using the genealogy in Genesis 5, which includes the ages of the fatherhood for the men descended from Adam through Noah, starting there with Adam, and it's the father of Seth, and so on, um, in a very precise manner in that chapter, along with other biblical dates listed elsewhere in Scripture, it can actually be calculated that the flood occurred in the year 2348 B.C., just by using these dates, which is equivalent to 1,656 years after Adam was created, right there. So if you add our current year of 2016 to that, you get 4,364. It's hard to argue that the flood didn't occur 4,364 years ago based on what the Bible's telling us. We shouldn't be too surprised that the Bible's able to show us that. I think it's amazing, though, that uh, just to see it right there when you really uh, look at it and, and do the math. Um, listen, I want to shift now into talk about the implications of the theory of evolution and secular thinking. And... Uh, you know, and go into that and why it matters, and then uh, have some more scripture to uh, talk about sort of the uh, the implications of that, and and you know what's coming as far as uh, you know the next judgment. Um, the main objective, I think, even if it isn't explicitly stated very often, evolution discards the God of the Bible, such that free and open-minded thinking and a lifestyle that doesn't need to acknowledge sin can occur. And you, I think you know it as well as I, this has led to the acceptance of abortion and homosexuality and false teaching in the church and so on. Secular science and the theory of evolution disregards the single, the single worldwide flood that occurred long ago, 4,364 years ago, and therefore allows fossils to be as old as they need to be. And when the flood is disregarded, so is the original sin, and, and allows one to also throw out Adam and Eve being the first humans made in God's image. But very importantly, and I think very sadly, um, with sin not acknowledged, the gospel is cut off before it has a chance to be heard. If there's no sin, there's no need for a savior. And how convenient, you know, if, if you're not wanting to acknowledge the God of the Bible and go to him for salvation, 
If there's no sin, there's no need for a Savior. But it doesn't make it right, of course. In fact, with the God of the Bible disregarded or not acknowledged, anything goes. Evolutionists, atheists, or agnostics, anything goes for them. Um, and, and whether they consider themselves skeptics or evolutionists or agnostics or atheists, um, it, it, gives, it, it gives them what, what they're wanting. And I, I personally believe that many of them are actually familiar enough with the Bible that sadly, even if they may not want to believe in the millions of years evolutionary theory, they just want the option to put their faith in something entirely different so they buy into this secular thinking. I also believe it takes a lot more faith to accept the common philosophies of modern science and secular thinking, not only evolution, but you know the accidental random beginning of the universe, uh, the random beginning of organic life from inorganic material that really has no explanation. Secularists and agnostics and atheists, I, I believe they know that there must have been a beginning or an initial source to the universe that we live in. Again, it's Romans 1 again. They are without excuse. But in general, I, I think they just don't want the God who tells us in his word that he is God, who says that he is the Lord and that he wants to be our Lord, and who says he is the great I am, who says he wants to be our Savior. They, for some reason, they don't want the God who we love and revere and who we find our salvation in. So they've created another one. Secular thinking does that. You get a, a new God out of the deal. It's a false God, but that's, that's one of the results. They want a God that can be supported by scientific evidence, can be proven with experiment, and, and a God that doesn't want them to acknowledge their sin or surrender their lives to him. It's very sad, really, when you think about the implications of it. Well, how do we, I mean, if I, if I stop right there, that sounds very judgmental, but how, how do we or how can we reach out to secularists, atheists, evolutionists, however they identify themselves? I'm not sure that the typical pattern of a staunch atheist or evolutionist coming to the Lord and accepting Christ as their Savior comes from them finding out in a judgmental way that their worldview is wrong and bad and false and so on. I don't think by thumping them with the truth, even if it is the truth, and telling him, you know, what you're thinking is absolutely wrong. I don't know if they suddenly change and say, oh, well, then I'm going to accept Christ as my Savior. Um, thank you for telling me I'm wrong. Their worldview is different. So you have to let God come from inside them and change them through the gospel. Um, and so, so telling them that their atheistic worldview is in complete contrast to what the Bible says about his creation, the worldwide flood and sin and so on, um, and it, it may not be the best place to to start, excuse me, even if we do want them to eventually understand the truth and come to the Lord. So with so many of them, they've consciously decided to take an atheistic or, or secular worldview because they question God's love. Even though we know from Romans 1.20 they are without excuse, they still have their reasons, even if they seem irrational, for choosing to believe that they evolved over millions of years and don't have to be accountable to God for their sin. It's hard to start a conversation with them really, on the topic of God's beautiful creation that was made in six days when they don't want to agree that even the first ounce of what you believe in is true. It's hard to even start the conversation with them. So what do we do with these folks, whether they're friends or teachers or co-workers or professors or whoever, without, without severing a relationship all of a sudden? How do we maintain a relationship with others when we know that we disagree with them on, on that fundamental issue? So I've come up with five, some of these might overlap, just five, five tips, I think, that, that, um, that might be worth considering here. I, I try to live by them in the secular environment in which I, I work and live. Um, number one, you love them for who they are and despite what they currently believe. I think that's the way the Lord approached us, right? Just as we are, he came to us. Number two, you hold the line on the truth that you know from the word of God 
but be discerning and careful not to come across as condescending as you speak with them. Number three, very importantly, you pray for them. Pray that they would see God's love, and this may come from how you treat them, how you listen to them without making them feel judged, and how you carefully discern what to talk about with them at the right time, and and how you did that tactfully and respectfully. Pray that they see that in your actions, that you're loving them despite that they disagree with you on, on fundamental issues. Number four, pray for an opportunity to present the gospel to them, or pray that someone else has that opportunity to present the gospel to them, and be a lot more aware of trying to do that than trying to suddenly change their worldview. Again, I think it's the power of the gospel that will change their heart, which can eventually change their thinking. Finally, pray for God to reveal himself directly to them, however that might be. Um, and I, I think if many of us will say who, who are saved that it's, you know it was from someone's prayers that finally got you to your knees to say, Lord, yes, I do, I do need you. I accept you. It's through the power of prayer. We don't, we don't convert people on our own. It's through the power of God, through the power of his word, and he's the one that does it through his Holy Spirit. The bottom line, pray. Pray for their soul and see what God does. Um, it's a part here I probably will skip just due to, to time, but um, let me, I, I wanted to go into 2 Peter 3 and just mention how th- I think this directly relates to secular thinking and everything I've been, been talking about. I hope we can see how this passage is very directly addressing the secular way of thinking uh, that our world is really falling for. Starting in verse 3, 2 Peter chapter 3, if you could turn there. Yeah. Um, Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. I'd mentioned this when talking about the seafloor spreading. Oh, they've always been spreading at that rate. All continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. This is in the New Testament. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not, this is verse 8 now, but do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years. That's a thousand years, not a million. And a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise. Famous verse, 2 Peter 3, 9 here. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And that's the same Lord who waited patiently for the wicked to come to repentance while Noah spent a hundred years building the ark. Um, I'm going to jump ahead and also uh, finish with some words from our Lord Jesus Christ before we, before we do close in prayer. Um, if you could turn to Matthew 24. You don't have to turn there, but anyway, Matthew 24, and just a couple verses here uh, as Christ is speaking and referring to the, the flood of Noah. Matthew 24, starting in verse 36. But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. He is coming. He's coming, isn't he? And this coming will not be one preceded by lightning, floodwaters, or someone visibly building an ark in front of us for a hundred years. That's been done. God has given us his word. And we can look forward to the rapture, the Lord's return as well. 
But we should also be ever mindful that those who do, who do not repent and give their lives to Christ will be left behind, as, as God's word says they will, just like those captured by the flood, even though God was patient with them. In Noah's day, there was only one ark, and it only had one door, and God closed the door. Prior to the judgmental and destructive worldwide flood, Enoch, he was mentioned in the, on the chart in, from Genesis 5.24, Enoch, who walked with God, was taken. Enoch was raptured prior to the flood. Right? The Lord wanted him, and he saved Noah and his family. And on the ark, there were no human births or deaths that we read of. And all who believed in the coming flood and chose to get into the ark were saved. And as well, all alternative theological speculations ended when the door of the ark was shut. Well, in a real parallel way, I think in, in the days we live in, just as Christ alluded to in Matthew there, if we look now at our, at our day in 2016, there is still only one Savior. There's only one way. And he stands at the door and knocks. God's word will not bow to any secular, speculative, theological alternatives. So please, if there's anyone here who has not trusted and accepted that the Lord Jesus is your personal Savior, that he paid the price for your sins, please know that you can do that this very moment by a simple act of faith and know where the work is required of you for your eternal salvation. He's done it all. You just need to accept his gift. Um, let's close in a word of prayer. Thank you. Heavenly Father, we just come, come to you one last time tonight thanking you for your word, for the power of your word. You tell us that it is perfect, full of grace and truth, even telling us of how you judged an ancient world of sinners while you saved only eight of them. And, and your word also tells us that you will still judge the sins of this current world. But you tell us that you're patient, and you also tell us of the gospel of grace, that you have provided a Savior, your Son, Jesus Christ, who has completely cleansed us of our sins and allows us to fellowship with you for eternity when we choose to accept him as our personal Savior. I personally thank you for him and have accepted his free salvation, but I do pray for anyone here who has not come to a place of repentance before you, Lord, with this heart and giving you all the glory. In your Son's precious name we pray. Amen.